0: The reading of the Scriptures from the Gospel according to John. Reading from chapter 5. Uh, Your bulletin will mark uh, verses 19 to 29, but uh, at at Ronnie's request, we'll start at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father and making Himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives him life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.
1: Growing up, I used to hear people say quite often, that boy is the spitten image of his father. Many of you about my age or maybe a little older remember that. And uh, it's interesting that the original saying from Britain around the early 1800s was spit and image. Um, I didn't know that until recently. Uh, but the word spit had come to mean before... The 1800s, it had meant the perfect likeness of the parent. Uh, that They would have said something like, well, that boy is the spit of his father. And of course, it didn't mean the literal the spit, but it had that connotation that, that that boy was literally out of the mouth of his father. And eventually, I think the way languages go and the way sayings go, uh, it, the word image was Conjoined there to spit and became spit and image. Now, when I first heard it as a boy, I heard spitting image. And uh, because I think it came over from those in Britain that had a very thick accent. So I'm gonna try a little bit here. It'll be bad, but I'll try it. That boy is a spitting image of his father. All right. See, I watched Oliver Twist, so I know I know how to do that. Thank you. <laughs> But that's, you know, I, I thought it was spitting image, and that's fine, but it's actually spitten image. It's a contraction of spit and image. The perfect likeness of someone. In our text, Jesus proves that he is, in fact, the spitten image of his Father, of the invisible, eternal God enthroned in the heavens, that Jesus Christ, in nature and will and power, is the perfect likeness of his own Father. In fact, if you want to look at the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, he begins the book this way, setting the tone, and he, although he says uh, many things in verse 18, he says, no man has seen God at any time, this we would grant. But notice this, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus told His disciple Philip on one occasion, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in Hebrews 1, 3, the Word proclaims that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and He is the exact representation of God's nature. He is a spitten image of His Father. Well, the background of the text that Jay read for us this morning and that we're going to look at is that Christ had begun His public ministry and His initial miracles had an effect as they were intended to upon the people that saw them and observed them. But the effect was not a good one with the Jewish leadership. The early miracles of Jesus had only served to harden their hearts in their cold religious formalism. And there was a very notable miracle that had just taken place. We didn't take the time to read it in the first part of chapter 5 there of John, but there was a man by the pool of Bethesda, and it said that the man had been lame 38 years, he was on a, upon a bed or a pallet, and, uh, and then Jesus came and asked him, would you like to be healed? And the man said, yes, but I have an issue, I don't have anybody to carry me down when the time is right and someone always gets there before me, and it was a sad case indeed, one that all of the community knew about, 38 years. Jesus said, take up your pallet and walk. And the man was fully healed. Now we have some beggars that we'll see as we come to church or as we leave the church on the street corners. My problem is I I don't ever know whether they really need it or not. You know, is that the man stands, he walks to the car. I mean, you know, is is it his body? Is it his mind? I mean, we feel as Christians compassion on those needing help, don't we? We're never really quite sure who we ought to help, so we have to pray and be discerning. Sometimes we give it right, and sometimes we give wrong, but we give in the Spirit of Christ, don't we? Well, there wasn't any question about this man. Thirty-eight years the man laid looking for somebody to help, and at the moments when he thought he might get the help, he was outpaced by some other person, and he got nothing. So this was a notable miracle. This was something amazing that had happened. Take up your bed and walk, Jesus said, and the man walked. But rather than recognizing God's visitation to them and following Jesus by faith, these these Jews rather hardened their hearts like a stone. Notice what it says in verse 16 that they did. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. (laughs) They didn't ask the man you know, who's the man that healed you? Like, we want, to, we want to see this man and get to know this man. They said, who told you to walk on the Sabbath? Who told you to carry something on the Sabbath? Accusatory of Jesus. They were looking in verse 18, as we did read for an occasion, even to kill him. Jesus began to teach them the reality of who he was. And verse 18 says, For this cause they were seeking all the more to kill him because he was a Sabbath breaker and because he made himself equal with God. He was saying that God is his own father in a unique way that no one else is his father. You know, and without realizing it, the Jewish leadership was embracing a doctrine of death. Dead in their sins, dead and cold in their external only religion. It wasn't the truth that was delivered under Moses. It wasn't the heart and the soul of what the law was to teach and to lead us to, which is repentance and faith. It was a cold, dead formalism. They were dead and preventing others from seeking the truth. The light had come into the world, and they blocked the light from their own eyes, and they told others, don't seek this man. He's not the true one who is to come. And even having murderous intentions toward the prince of life. Any any religion that rejects the Son of God is a dead religion, isn't it? Any religion, any form of religion that rejects the Son of God having come into the world. Even John says so in his epistles, is a cold, dead religion. Well, verse 19 tells us that in answer to that cold, dead doctrine of death, espoused by the Jews, Jesus turns and He teaches the doctrines of life. Jesus spoke over against their cold, dead religiosity. He spoke life, and He spoke it as the Father Himself had sent Him to do. And in these verses that we're going to see from verses 19 down to verse 29, Jesus here gives the most comprehensive statement of His own divinity and unique relationship to the Father of any place in all of the New Testament. So this morning I want to point out four doctrines of life. Four doctrines of life taught in these verses before us, all right? Doctrine of life number one. The Father and the Son are ever working to create and to sustain life. Notice verse 17. Here's where I take this from. Jesus answered them when they accused Him of breaking the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, healing a man on the Sabbath, He said, first of all, My Father is working until now. In other words, He's saying, pointing them to the fact that God is working ceaselessly in His creation, among and through His creation. Just as God created the world, He spoke it into existence, He sustains that world. He governs that world. He moves upon that world by sovereign power, and it works. It's in order, and it accomplishes the purpose of God. It displays the glory of God. God is ceaselessly working. God works in the lives of His people, God works in the governing of raising up of governments and the bringing down of governments. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall at His will. God causes seasons to come upon the earth, times and seasons and occasions, occasions of, of great intensification of His presence, times that seemingly He is far from the church, though He is not far from any one of us, as Paul declares. But God is ever-governing. There's never a time when God ceases to work in this creation. He's ever creating. He's ever working, ever sustaining, ever renewing, ever governing, every single element of creation. You know, we're sending satellites out into the outer space, the far deep space now, and they're supposedly going to send us information back. We've already seen some of that. It's amazing. But the farther we go, all we're going to realize is the farther space goes, right? The greater is God's universe, and sometimes the goal of man is to get to the very end and like run into a wall and go, uh oh, <laughs> you know, that's as far as it goes. So there is no God. Therefore, man is God. Well, the farther we look at the expanse of the universe or the closer we look at any microorganism uh, upon this earth, we recognize it goes much deeper than even we have been able to look thus far. God is so great, it displays his glory in continuously working and creating and managing his creation. If God were to cease that activity, no created thing would exist, right? I mean, we and every other created thing, which is everything outside of God Himself, He created it all, it would all cease to exist were God to cease His activity. And so Jesus is reminding them what Paul said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 In Him we live and move and have our being. In God we exist. God doesn't need us to exist, we need God to exist. His activity of starting something becomes His activity of carrying something and sustaining it and bringing it all the way to His desired goal. And I've said it on other occasions, I won't go into it much now, but what God creates never goes away. It remains in some form or another. It's interesting when you think about it. Now note Jesus' words in verse 17. He says, My Father is working until now. He doesn't stop working on the Sabbath or any other time that you religious Jews might not even care to notice that He works. But notice what Jesus says about Himself. And I, Myself, am working. And the I is emphatic here. Jesus said, The Father never ceases His divine activity over His creation, and neither do I. Wow, what a claim He's making. Just as the Father of life is working out His plan of redemption so does Jesus continually work also. The Apostle John establishes this doctrine. Let's go back to the first chapter and look at these first verses of the epistle where he says, beginning in verse number 1 and down to verse 4, "...in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him." And without Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. King James, I think, if you're looking at that, says, there was not anything made that He didn't make. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Doctrines of life is Jesus speaking. So God was in Christ, manifest in the flesh, beginning his public ministry, exercising the power of God and the will and the purpose of God, and the religious Jew says, let's kill this guy. (laughs) That's their response. Jesus is essentially saying to these Jewish leaders, as we come back to John chapter 5, you can accuse me all you want to as a Sabbath breaker and as a blasphemer, but in doing so, you accuse God himself. Because God is ceaselessly working. My Father continuously works in your behalf if you don't even realize it. And so do I. When my Father works, I work. My Father works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. (laughs) Neither the Father nor the Son cease to carry out the eternal purpose of the Trinity on the Sabbath or any other time. So the Father and the Son are ever working to create and sustain life. There's a second second doctrine of life that Jesus brings out beginning in verse 19, and it's this, that the Son does all things in cooperation with the Father. Now beginning in verse 19 and down to verse 29, let's give you kind of how these verses work together. Each of the Lord's statements which are introduced by the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, create a different section or a statement. There's three of them, aren't there? And each one of those build upon what was said before. It's a form of parallelism that Jesus is using in order to bring out the finer details and reemphasize the point. So that verses 19 to 23 explain verse 17. When Jesus made the statement, my father is working and I am working also, verses 19 to 23 bring that out. Then in verse 24, another truly, truly statement, it backs up and explains further verses 19 to 23. Then beginning in verse 25, I think it is, then down to 29, those verses explains what Jesus had said further in verse 24. So one after the other reinforces the doctrine by repetition. And that's how we learn, isn't it? We learn by repetition. Think of an attorney in the courtroom making their case, They're very concise and brief at first, setting the stage in the narrative, but then over and over by repeating the important facts of the case in ever greater detail, they make the case plain. They don't say it all at the front, but they state the truth, and then they reemphasize that truth, and they recapitulate the facts, and on it goes. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. And so we see the first truly, truly statement in verse 19, Jesus therefore answered. In other words, He responded to these unbelieving Jews. And it's the Jewish leadership that we should have in mind here. He responds to them. In the cold hatred of their heart, He says to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. That's an astounding claim, isn't it? That Jesus sees the invisible, miraculous work of an unseen God, His Father in heaven. He sees that. He recognizes it. He knows what the Father is doing. Well, no mortal man can make that claim. We're often lamenting that we can't see the hand of God. Oh, if I could see the hand of God... And what we mean is, I want to see God manifest in some way in my life, in power, changing my circumstances, manifesting His love in my heart, changing me, molding and shaping me. And all of those are great desires. But we recognize, don't we? We don't know what God is doing many times. We don't see what God is doing. We can't see what God is doing. Jesus said, I see what the Father's doing, and I do the same things. <laughs> That's an amazing and astounding claim. There's an essential unity here between the Father and the Son. If you take the time, and I hope you do, maybe later today or at another occasion after this message, to read all of John chapter 5, you can't help but see that Jesus over and over says, as the Father, so the Son. What the Father does, so I do. There's an essential unity that Jesus is bringing out. Let me just lay out just a few of them, and I know there are probably more we could see, but here they are. There's a unity of essence, a unity of will, a unity of love, a unity of sovereign power, a unity of judgment, a unity of honor, a unity of doctrine, a unity of mission. Those are all just found in the fifth chapter of John. And like you, I've read the whole book of John, and there's a lot more in it. Jesus is saying... As the Father, so the Son. And there is an essential unity of nature and will between us. You Jews, you see a man, and a man that you wish to kill, and a man you wish to condemn as false. But let me tell you what's going on. I'm God, having come in the flesh. Notice verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. That's how Jesus knows about it. The Father's showing it to him. I don't know what your home life was like. My relationship to my father was really a broken one and not a good one until after I married and realized that I was going to stop blaming my dad for all the trouble of of my past and his past. And we both changed quite a bit. I'd been born again uh, right around the time my wife and I married or just before and realized what grace and forgiveness was about. So I went to him and we reconciled and we began to love one another and have a relationship. Maybe maybe you came from a broken home or maybe you came from a loving home, but you always want to know in the right relationship what dad's doing, what your father's doing, and get in on it. I do remember one happy memory. My dad built a dune buggy one time, and I think I was five to six years old, and uh, when he was still living in our home, and and, and I got under there with him, and you know, what does a five-year-old know about building a dune buggy? I mean, I don't know, a crescent wrench from a From a, well, whatever, I don't know. I mean, I do know what those things are now, but I just didn't think ahead, you know, enough to to make an analogy. Let's say a hammer, okay? (laughs) So anyway, I'm under there, though. I want to help Dad. I want to see what Dad's doing, you know? Dad, tell me what you're doing. You know, it's important to me that I know what you're doing. Well, a close relationship to the father allows the father to say to the son or the daughter, here's what I'm doing. Let me show you what I'm doing. I love you, and if it's important to you, if it's necessary for you to know, I'm going to show you, and I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to show you exactly what I'm doing. Jesus is saying that in verses 19 and 20. The Father loves me, and He's showing me everything and He's doing. The last part of verse 20 says, And greater works than these will He show that you may marvel. Greater works than what? Greater works than physical healing. Amazing as that miracle was, the man who had been lame for so long had suddenly been made to walk. I mean, it, if you grew up around that man, if you, if you saw that man every weekend when you went back to town and looked around him and you had compassion for him, you felt for him, you thought he's never going to get well. He's just got to live with it. But Jesus came into time and space and He healed this man for a specific purpose of revealing who he was. And the man is walking Jesus is saying that's because the Father and I, we work together in cooperation. Greater works in the physical healing are coming about, and I'm going to tell you what they are, that you may marvel and you may uh, see the person that I truly am. What are those works? Verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. That's one of the greater works that Jesus is talking about. Who but God can raise the dead? I mean, this is really the foundation of the remaining verses too. Not only is the Father working and therefore Jesus is working ceaselessly in our behalf, but the fact that only God can raise the dead. You know, we, we have a tendency to think better of ourselves than we ought to. And if you were in the Sunday school class this morning, you heard Dr. Boyce's uh, exposition on the book of Romans, he took the legs right out from under that theory. We like to think good of ourselves. We like to think that we're not all that bad in when the, when the bottom line, when it comes right down to it, that God must look down and say, well, you've got a, little, a lot of little sin on you, but you know, dust that off and everything will be okay. No, no, no. We're dead. We are dead. And you can't get any more dead than we are in our trespasses and sins. And even if we're talking about someone physically dead, the question remains, who can raise the dead? but God alone? No one. The answer is obvious. In any sense, Jesus said, this is the type of work that I'm doing and will be doing in order that you may recognize who I am and that I do all things in cooperation and unity with my Father. Verse 22 also goes beyond and says, not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. Father has, in a way form or fashion, passed the baton of governing his world unto the Son. He is enthroned as king over God's creation, and he has handed that to him, and he's governing everything, not just final judgment. If you read that into what he's saying, you'd be right in an ultimate sense, because it includes final judgment. But the judgment here is administration over God's business. He says, you own the company now, son. You run the business now. I govern and you govern as a vice regent because we are one. Remember Daniel 7? We refer to it often around here. I think that we might have to call ourselves the Daniel 7 church or the Daniel church. Phil loves it. I love it. And I'm assuming, but I know, Jay, that he loves it as well. Because it establishes so many important facts about the kingdom of Christ which we are living in, which has begun, because it began when Christ came. Well, Daniel 7.14 says that after Jesus ascended up to heaven in the clouds, now we could not see what was going on, but we have prophetic insight through Daniel that He was presented before the Ancient of Days, remember? And He was given something. After His death, obedient life, and His obedient death, and his glorious resurrection and his ascension up to the throne, in heaven, he was given something. He was given the keys. And it wasn't the father saying, Here's the keys to the car. <laughs> I mean, he said, I'm giving you keys, all right. Here's the keys to everything. You are in charge of everything and everyone. They must fall before you and worship. They owe allegiance to you, the Son. To you alone must all men be accountable. It says in Daniel 7, 14 that He was given dominion and glory and sovereignty over all things. And to what divine purpose? Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Because Jesus said, he who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father. (laughs) Jewish leadership said, we honor the Father. We're an ancient religion. God gave us this religion. Truly, He did. Although they had drastically altered and perverted it. it, became external only. Do this, don't do that. Look like me, you're saved. Don't look like me, you're not saved. Wear this, eat that, don't eat this. We've all come from places like that, or know people like that. But they'd corrupted that into their own standard, of which was only condemning them and only driving them further away from God. What's the purpose? of the cooperation of the Father and the Son, the divine unity of essence and will and power between the Father and the Son. It's in order that they may glorify the Father, but only through the Son. There is no worshiping of God but through the Son. You can't say in your religion, Jews, we worship God, but we reject the Son. They contradict one another. If you worship the Son, you're worshiping the Father. If you do not, said Jesus, if you reject the Son, You're rejecting the Father as well. See, Jesus isn't claiming here to be like the Father, is He? He's claiming equality with the Father. I'm one with the Father, He says in another place. I'm not like Him. I'm equal to Him in nature and power and authority. Well, there's a third doctrine of life that Jesus brings out, each one, again, building upon the one before. The third doctrine of life is this. In verse 24, receiving the gospel of the Son... And believing the testimony of the Father results in eternal life. You've either asked yourself this question or you ought to this morning. How do I know that I have eternal life? How do I receive eternal life? Believing the word of the Son, the gospel, the word He spoke, and receiving the testimony of the Father about Him throughout the Scriptures results in eternal life. That's the next truly, truly statement. Let's read verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You see, there's both a hearing and a believing involved in what Jesus says. There's a hearing aspect and there's a believing aspect. And we need to know what He means by hearing, what type of hearing, and what type of believing. We need to qualify the terms a little bit, don't we? Well, we get some insight in John chapter 12. If you'd look there with me, let's begin reading in John 12 at verse 44 down to verse 50. Verse 44, John 12, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me. (laughs) <laughs> Wait a minute, what what's going on here? He who believes in me doesn't believe in me? Well, the whole statement gives it, doesn't it? He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. It goes right along with what we're saying. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, and everyone who believes in me, that excuse me, everyone who believes in me may not re- remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus' mission initially was not that of bringing the judgment of God upon the world, but rather bringing the light of life unto fallen man. He was the light that shined in the darkness. That was not the focus of His initial ministry, though well, it is a part of it, certainly. Verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is... What will judge him at the last day? For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Now, that's pretty intimate, isn't it? I'm saying and doing what the Father is telling me to say telling me to do you say oh well that minimizes the glory and ministry of jesus doesn't it no it maximizes it who hears the word of god in an intimate way he's, who sees the works of god like jesus does day after day full of the holy spirit leaning in his humanity upon his father and the holy spirit for his earthly journey trusting explicitly everything found in the Word of God, every promise, every word, every jot, every tittle. Jesus believed it all, embraced it all, and fulfilled it all. Verses 47 and 48, it says, to hear Jesus' Word is more than simply hearing His truth in your ears, right? I mean, a lot of people do that. I mean, a lot of people hear the truth in some form or fashion. That's not the hearing that Jesus is talking about because verse 47 said that there are those that hear His sayings, but they don't keep them. They disregard them. That's not the hearing that Jesus is talking about. In verse 48, He says there are those that that don't receive His sayings, okay, but they rather reject it. So to disregard or to reject the words of Christ is not the hearing that He's talking about. Their hearts are like a stone, their minds are hardened against God's Word, no matter how religious they may be outwardly. And so the type of hearing which the Lord is indicating in John chapter 5, verse 24, those who hear My Word, is that of hearing but not disregarding, right? Hearing and not rejecting. In other words, giving Him a hearing. Instead of going like this to the words of Christ, you go like this. Now, wait a minute. I must hear this. I need to hear this. And you not only hear it once, but the idea is that you continually hear it. The language in Greek is that of continuing to hear. It's not a one-time event. Oh, back then, you know, oh, three, you know, I heard Jesus. No, it's I continue to hear the word of the Lord. It's understanding and receiving the gospel for yourself. That's the type of hearing that Jesus is talking about. Now, verse 49 and 50 go on to say that there is a type of, of receiving the testimony of the Father and embracing it as true, which also leads to eternal life. Hearing the word of the Son, believing the testimony of the Father, this is John chapter 5, verse 24, results in eternal life. He said... The Father gave me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. When you think of commandment, doesn't that hearken you back to the law, of the Old Testament, where God gave His law on tablets of stone through Moses? And that law was a reflection of God's own character and His will for His beloved people. But their problem then is the same as our problem now. We can't keep the law perfectly. We can't keep it. We see it, and it does work to only condemn us. Jesus, though, saw the commandment of God and He kept it perfectly. He and He alone was able to receive it in a way that He expressed it in every thought and every action and every word that He spoke. Fully, fully keeping the commandment of God in our place because we could not. The law re heaps ruin upon us because we're lawbreakers, but it heaps praise upon Christ who kept the law. Now, that's the one whom the Father sent. He keeps the law perfectly in our behalf, and Christ embodies the whole of the law in both its intent and in its fulfillment. So, as we come back to John 5 and verse 24, Jesus is saying to believe my word, that's the gospel, and to And to hear my word, that's the gospel, and believe on Him who sent me, you have eternal life. To believe the testimony of the Scriptures throughout their entirety of what God the Father is saying about me, of whom the prophets wrote, of whom the Scriptures are centered around, is to have eternal life. What does that eternal life mean? What's an expression of it? Verse 24 says, You will not come into judgment, and you have passed out of death into life. I have to move quickly for time's sake, but I'll say this. The language means that you've already moved out of death into life if you believe in the Son and the Father. You've already received eternal life unto yourself. You've already been relieved of the judgment and the wrath of God that hung up over your head as a sinner. It's already occurring because you have, in fact, heard the Son. Well, there's a fourth doctrine of life, and it's this. The ultimate power of life and death reside in the Son. Notice verse 25. Truly, truly, an hour is coming uh, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. The ultimate power of life and death reside in the Father and the Son. As I said earlier, who can raise the dead but God? Now Jesus is, in each one of these parallel phrases, we didn't spend much time on them, but in each one of these, He's narrowing it closer and closer and closer, where He finally says right now, in essence, I hold the power of life and death in my hands. The only way for the dead to live again is to hear the voice of the Son of God. I want to emphasize that this morning. Whether you are counting yourself dead in trespasses and sins in your forefather Adam or you don't realize that, whether we're talking about someone that has been buried and in, in lies in the ground at this time, either way, The only way the dead can ever be raised is to hear the voice of the Son of God. That's amazing, isn't it, if you think about it? How can I be raised from deadness and sin? I must hear the voice of the Son of God. How can the dead ultimately be raised? They must hear the voice of the Son of God. Jesus tells us it's His own command that raises the dead. If you've never asked the Savior to have mercy upon your lost soul, I implore you to do it this morning. Because it's Jesus alone who speaks the command to a dead soul and raises it up to new life. It's Jesus alone who at the end of the age will speak to the dead who are in the graves, all of them, and they will be raised into new life, just like He spoke to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth, and He did. He can speak to your soul if it's dead and trespasses and sins. He can say to you, soul, whoever you are, come to life and it will because Jesus commands the power of life and death. I'm sure you noticed the dual reference to time in verse number 25 and here's where I have to end this morning. I say to you, an hour is coming and an hour now is when all the dead will be raised. Well, there's two senses there that uh, maybe some other time we'll take and really explore that. The first sense, of course, is that of the future. The time is coming. He says all the dead will be raised. He says this in verse 28, doesn't he? Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Every last one of them, physically dead from Adam forward. There's a day when Jesus will call them all forth. And we certainly understand that aspect of it. There's a future aspect of raising up of the bodies, resurrection from the dead in that sense. But there's another aspect that Jesus wanted His hearers to hear then, and I want you to hear this morning, and that's the now is aspect. The time is coming when the bodies will be raised, but the time now is, Jesus said, when the dead are in fact hearing the voice of the Son of God, and they are being raised And that's a sense that it's a spiritual resurrection of dead souls. Ephesians 4, 2, 4 and 5, that is, says God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive. Regeneration, the new birth, is Christ commanding that my dead soul, when I was about 19 years old, be raised to new life. Only the voice of the Son of God, only hearing the voice of the Son of God could raise me from a dead sinner, apart from God, hating God, maybe even would have been among those, had I lived in that time, that would have said, let's kill that man. We think he's a blasphemer. We think he's a liar. But for the grace of God, there go I. Only the voice of the Son of God commands a dead soul to live. I heard, praise God, the voice of the Son of God. Not audible, but I heard it in regeneration. I heard it in a new life, a new heart, a new mind, a new desire, a new purpose. Well, you have to ask my wife how rotten I was before, and she'll tell you the truth about it. I mean, I tell a pretty sad tale myself, but she knew me before. I mean, I'm changed. You think, boy, you got a long way to go, Ron. I do, but i am changed. I'm so much different, praise God. How does that happen? Oh, well, I just got religion. I joined a church. I was in the tradition of the Presbyterians. I was in the tradition of the Baptists. I gave money. None of that. You cannot be saved by anything that you do. You must hear the voice of the Son of God in His command to regenerate your soul. And it results in faith, it results in obedience, it results in joy, it results in hope, because you've heard the voice of the Son of God, and it leads to eternal life. In everything that Jesus said and did, He proved that He is God revealed in human flesh for our salvation. He's the obedient servant Son of which Isaiah the prophet spoke. And He came and He spoke the doctrines of life into our hearts. He gave and gave and gave again. The Holy One, the Righteous One, gave Himself for those who are unworthy, that we might live again. Not only live again in the new birth when He calls us to life, but live again ultimately when our bodies are raised immortal to live in the new age with Him. Jesus is the gift of life from the Father, and let us keep on hearing and keep on believing that we may enjoy the life of which He has given us.